Welcome everyone to the Coffee Explorer podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Stone, and today I'm talking to a new associate of mine that I've come to grow fond of, Chris Greenfield. He is actually the creator and founder of Roasters Marketplace, which is something that, having been in the industry for over 20 years, is really overdue. It's a nice compilation of great roasters, Boutique roasters and high quality is definitely some criteria that Chris speaks to. And I'll let him tell him a little, I'll let Chris explain a little bit more about his company to you. And he is also a colleague in podcasting. He created and is host of the Common Grounds podcast also. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much, Jen, for having me on this morning. My pleasure. So tell us a little bit how you kind of got going with Roasters Marketplace. I fell into it most much like most people in specialty coffee. I was introduced by one of my really good friends to small batch coffee roasters and in the development of a website fell in love with the fresh roasted coffee and the ability to get something from someone you knew. And I love the fact that if I order a bag of coffee from one of my roasters or from Eugene, in fact, I know who roasted it and I probably know where it came from. And in the sense of a farm or the origin of the coffee, and you can't do that a lot with a lot of products. And nowadays in where we're at in the environment and with COVID-19, Knowing where something comes from and being able to make that connection with somebody is pretty cool, especially when you can have it delivered to your door. So I started Roasters Marketplace because I fell in love with coffee roasters and the entire industry as a whole. And the fact that I can get up and make a delicious cup of coffee in the morning or in the mid morning or afternoon or the evening and know exactly where it came from is something really special and that's why I'm doing it. That's awesome. And you're sharing it with thousands of other people now and you're giving a platform to roasters that they you know, might not be able to execute. You've got a lot of bandwidth on your website. Uh, you do a lot of offers with free shipping. And so that really helps people who are more focused on the craft of making the coffee. You're handling some of the, the high level you know, back office tasks that can bog some of us down. My focus is definitely on spreading the word about the coffee roasters. I think if you look at touch points or impressions, when it all comes down to it, I'm reaching about 10 to 15,000 people a week when it, you're talking about all the social media and all the podcasting and the downloads and Instagram. If you roll them all up together, it's about 15,000 people that are at least seeing or hearing something about Roasters Marketplace or Specialty Coffee. Mm -hmm. And that just continues to grow each week. Yeah. And I think that's so great. That connectivity that a great cup of coffee brings. And like you said, like one day your eyes were suddenly open to, I can have great coffee every day. (laughs) There's no reason for me to be drinking some sort of like functional swill. It's completely unnecessary. It's just such an attainable luxury anywhere over 50, 60, 70 cents a cup. CL Coffee, our sponsor. Other coffees range around 130 cents. A dollar thirty, a dollar seventy a cup. So yeah, it's something that's easily doable and just means so much when it tastes good. Like you said, you know where it's from, who made it, why they made it. 
what their kids' names are. It's just nice. And that's all it really needs to be. So Chris and I today, we're going to talk about the coffee label. And I think a lot of coffee buyers, when they're looking at different websites or at the store, there's a lot of information thrown at you that doesn't necessarily have context or make sense. And you don't really understand why that affects the taste of the coffee, which is, again, most important to us. And I wanted to start with, when you look at a bag of coffee, let's just pretend we're staring at a shelf of coffees in a cafe or at a store. The first thing is the coffee name. Chris, what do you usually find people name their coffee? And you're talking about separately from the brand name, yeah. correct? Yeah, the brand's usually the marquee and then and then the name of the coffee. Is it, do you find more blend names or do you see more like country names? Chris, besides the brand of the coffee, what do you find most people name their coffee? Okay. So, Chris, besides the brand of the coffee, what do you find a lot of people name their coffee? Most specialty coffee roasters that I work with and that I see and interact with typically name their coffee from the region or the country that it is from. Most of them, if it's a micro lot or something, it it typically goes down to the region or even to the farm level of that, you know, that product, that coffee. For example, I've got a Costa Rica La Mariposa, maybe? Yeah, Mariposa. There we go. On my desk right now. And that's from a roaster who might have three Costa Ricans. And so it is determined on how many offerings I would think that roaster is particularly offering on how specific they get with the geographic location to designate Mm -hmm. it. Another roaster that might have just a Costa Rican he might just call it Costa Rica. Yeah, yeah. Again, let's talk about Costa Rica. There's a lot going on. And so as a coffee drinker, and I see Costa Rica Los Naranjos, and then I see, which is in the central region of Costa Rica, and then I see Costa Rica West Valley. As a coffee drinker, do I need to know typically the soil and the coffees from the West Valley are a little different from the ones from Naranjos? That is like a a more advanced level piece of information that when you're looking at the label, you might want to think through. But in general, if you know you like Costa Rican coffees, they're generally light, bright, citrusy, orange citrus, some chocolates, then then you're fairly safe saying pretty much any region in Costa Rica is going to be in that profile. And then when I see a lot of people diving down to the farm name, that farm is probably called La Mariposa, which means the butterfly. And then some people even add, I've noticed the farmer's name. Um, If it's a a special lot, like you were saying, that someone's really put a lot of effort into the processing of that lot, which is happening more and more, then uh, they'll give a, a nod to the farmer as a point of distinction. Because most farms have several levels of coffee they'll produce, some of it is just your workhorse coffees that are super solid. And then they're usually running a couple of experimental coffees as well that nerds like us really like to get our hands on and taste. Yeah, I definitely see that as well. Right. And then what about blend names? So most of the time, geographical location in the area that the roaster is what I see a lot of. And I'll bring up two instances Elliot Murray is one of my roasters, and she's got a Cedar Mill coffee. And it's not due to anything other than there's a 
location in her town called Cedar Mill. And so she's named that blend for that. My buddy over at Evansville, he has riverboat blend. He's right on the river as well. So that mm-hmm. makes sense for there's some marketing that goes along with it sure. when you're doing a coffee. Sure. And that definitely has to do with location. I think, especially in the case of the geography, a lot of people feel safe starting with this local blend name than trying something crazy. I think it's much better for a local roaster, especially somebody that's on a smaller scale, to really concentrate on that local geographic region for their marketing. And if that boils over into their names for their coffee, then it's more familiar to get somebody to to pick up an Allagash blend or a Tennessee River Valley coffee uh, or something funny, something that makes it pop in your mind that I, and I bring it up Elliot and Murray's coffee again. She's got an espresso blend called, Whoa, dude. And <laughs> I've got a bag of that on order because I'm looking forward to it because as yeah. soon as I saw it, that name stuck with me. Whoa. Yeah. And there's a story behind it. The first time she tried that blend, she's, Whoa, dude, that's good. And it was named. And that's something that consumers and people like me look for on a coffee. That's pretty fun. So working our way down that label, again, in no particular order, but in the logical order, I think that I find the color of the roast or some roast style notes as the next indicator to the consumer. What do you see there? Definitely. And that can also transfer over into the roast name. Somebody might just be their brand names, dark roast or medium Mm -hmm. roast. That might be the roast's name. I also find that Not only does it relate to the actual color of the roast, but maybe some of the tasting notes to some extent. I have seen, I've probably got 12 different coffees in the house right now. And some of those, if you look at them, they're a lighter roast. But that roaster is classifying them as a medium roast because of the flavor profile that it actually is. Uh, and that's due to some the type of the bean or the processing method. But there is definitely some differences in the roasters. I'm doing air quotes like you can actually see me while you're <laughs> listening to this. But most roasters have that scale. And that scale goes all the way from a blonde cinnamon city, light city, all the way up until, what is it, a a full Italian or a a French roast, which is almost black, almost charcoal. But I like the bags that give a little bit of scale to that because then it transfers over a little bit better. So if you have uh, a, a chart of some extent or for example, if you have a chart and on one end of that scale is dark and one end of that scale is light, and then some way to mark that scale lets the consumer know where that bean might actually be in the taste profile, in the roast profile as well. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. And then so as a roaster, those are definitely defined roast colors. Vienna roast, city roast, full city. 
French, Italian, and Spanish, I think, is dried out looking charcoal pieces of beans. <laughs> Who would want to drink that? But that's what they call it. Anyway, and then we have a few different color scales that we can rate the coffee on. But in this industry, they're not highly monitored or enforced, of course. Again, it is the artist's interpretation, the, roast, the roaster's interpretation of that color and what they call it. If I go past that, I think that the next thing typically I see on the label is probably the flavor notes. So maybe a word or two about, usually three, I've noticed, about the taste of the coffee that uh, you'll experience. Some roasters break it down. I've seen some roasters break it down with the aroma notes and tasting notes. And then others will go on to give a full story about the coffee maybe on the front or on the back of the bag. What do you see in terms of uh, flavor notes a lot? Anything confusing? Anything that's very repetitive? I think when I first got into this, if I don't know what that fruit actually is, there's two ways. That can pique somebody's interest or that can just blow. When I first started looking at the tasting notes that you would see, sometimes things either are familiar like strawberry. I know what strawberry tastes like, or at least I think I know what strawberry tastes like. But then you would get tasting notes like, I had to look this up to pronounce it right, lychee fruit. I've seen it. I've never had it. That really doesn't do me any good as a consumer to say this tastes like lychee fruit, unless it piques my interest. I'm like, okay, what does lychee fruit taste like? But stuff that we're used to seeing, like nutty, almond, cocoa, chocolate, dark chocolate, light chocolate, milk chocolate, you know, caramel, we can figure that out. We know what that Mm. tastes like. And on bags, on a label, I think it's very important to be able to connect and share that what you think as a roaster that bag should taste like or that coffee tastes like in a certain brewing method. I see a lot of times that you could break the tasting notes down into three elements, the aroma, the actual taste, and maybe the body or how it feels in your mouth. And so if I say something is lemon or citrus, that smell or the brightness or the acidity to it, Mm -hmm. it's nutty, that could be the taste, and then it's velvety or medium body or thick there's different ways to do that and sometimes you see that in tasting notes is where you can definitely tell that they're saying okay this is how it smells this is how it tastes and this is how it what the body of the coffee feels like i'm glad you said that about acidity i find that to be one of the more confusing words in the industry for people trying to determine the coffee taste and so many people say, do you have a low acid coffee? And that's not what they mean. And I think that's such a horrible marketing term <laughs> that people with bad coffee use a lot yeah. <laughs> is low acid. Because everybody's, if you take a pH strip and stick it down into a cup of coffee, it's going to be about the same. Yeah, it's 98% exactly. water. It, you're not going to really get acid out of that coffee. I think if right. you tested typically is maybe on a little bit on the acidic side, but not to the point where you're going to be able to tell 
in unless you have a scientific lab that something is lower acidity. I think for those who drink coffee and are fans of coffee or coffee nerds, as I like to call them, if something is bright or if I see it, something is saying that it's higher acidity, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that feels like a like you're biting into a lemon. That's that citrusy flavor. It's bright when you drink it. I like to use that term because that's what it f- tastes like. Bright. Is, is that a flavor? Yeah. But it's definitely a confusing term that you get a lot in the industry, especially when it's being used as a marketing tool, low acidic coffee. Yeah. Okay. What does it do when you have people with stomach issues? And they're right. like, I need a low acidic coffee. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is a little gimmicky. I like to describe acidity as the liveliness or brightness that a certain aspect that that brings to the cup. So like in the case of the green apple, which is bright and tart versus the yellow apple, which is very mild and smooth, or even Sprite versus Mm -hmm. Coca-Cola, a little bit of a zip that if the coffee didn't have acidity at all, it would be very flat and dull. And I try to use that word in a very careful way when I'm describing it, those flavor notes to people. Here's a question I have for you. A lot of people will put a flavor note on the bag that isn't actually a taste, like irreverent or bold. What do you make of that? Bold a lot. People say, I like a big, I like a strong, bold coffee. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? Strength is how you brew it. And boldness or you want something that just like really stands out and hits you in the face when you take a sip. Yeah. I think it has to do with what people are just trying to convey in the taste of yeah. a coffee. Cause unless it has something that really stands out, coffee tastes like coffee. You know, it is unless you get something a really good flavor in there that people can actually say, Oh, I definitely taste the blueberry. Or I definitely taste the dark chocolate that it's really, or something that's really roasted and has that smoky overtone to it. It's hard to say that coffee tastes like coffee. So it's it's all the, the marketing that comes into it. But when you get something that stands out, it's amazing. And you can really say that it really tastes like blueberry. Or you can narrow it down. I had a coffee that is absolutely amazing, and I don't know where I got it. It's an Ethiopian whoosh <laughs> that is long fermented, and I can narrow down its flavor notes to where if you baked a fresh homemade blueberry muffin and part of that blueberry touched the pan and got a little bit more done than the rest of the blueberry and it's slightly smoky and slightly sweet and sticky and delicious, that is what that coffee tastes like. And that is something that's amazing to be able to pick out in a cup of coffee. So whoever roasted that did a fantastic (laughs) job. They did. I'm sure they did. And I do want to segue a little bit here. CL.World, the sponsor of the Coffee Explorer podcast, they have a benchmark. They've created a new standard. And and everybody knows I'm personally involved in this brand. But uh, the standard is called Cafe Privé Select. So private select coffee. And it's 
compi comprised of several aspects of making sure that the coffee has a certain standard of quality, but complexity of flavor is our number one benchmark, meaning when you taste a coffee that any person tasting it, if it's brewed properly, will get one or two or three of those distinct flavor notes. And so it's not meant to be a, a muddled or, or what's the word, level cup. It has, it's a, they're very dynamic coffees. And that's one of the benchmarks of Cafe Privé Select. So I love that you pointed out, like, you can have coffees that are complex and unique. And you may or may not want them. And you can have your, you know, go-to donut blend every day of the week. And maybe that's how you like your coffee. But that's what's so great about coffee. It is. It really is. And being able to grab something and even brewing it differently to bring out flavor notes that you're looking for. Or I have a, a Guatemalan that I'm working on and it is a fantastic espresso. It makes a wonderful Americano, which is exactly really deep chocolate notes to it. Nutty, smooth, with just a little bit of brightness to it and I can drink that every day of the week but sometimes I want something different yeah 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 nice so flavor notes yeah just all across the board but I think it's an important thing to convey to the consumer like you're going to grab these tastes and flavors so after that what would you say a lot of roasters are posting next altitude definitely comes up Altitude, especially if it's a micro lot or they know it's from a singular region, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily a, you can have a general Colombian or you can have a hula, I believe it is. Weva? Cueva? Huila. Uh, yeah, like. Okay. See, there you go. Yeah. Got the pronunciations down. <laughs> but that is a narrow specific region. Irgashev or Sedimo in Ethiopia, you get those elevations in that region and i believe the scientific reasoning behind that is the higher up the longer it takes that coffee to develop due to environmental conditions and so you get different flavor profiles due to the fact that it took that bean nine and a half months to mature rather than something from 800 meters above sea level in brazil that took four and a half months for it to mature. So there might be some different complexity from that elevation. Typically I see that in meters above sea level or just meters. And that's because that's probably the information that the roaster got from the supplier since everywhere else uses the metric system yes. and we don't. Nobody wants to convert 1500 meters above sea level to a few. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, I did want to point out is like, well, how is this relative to the taste of the coffee? And how do I know if this coffee is grown at 1100 meters instead of 1200? Is it not as good? It's just it's a reference point. It's not especially when you're dealing with specialty coffee. You're not you're going to have a tight range of altitude. Not if you're like climbing this altitude, but basically I've seen as low as 1100 meters for some really high quality Brazils. And then I've seen up to 2,200 meters for some things from Panama and a couple of Central American coffees get up that high. And there's not, again, it's A, it's, those coffees cost more. It's hard to pick coffee at that altitude. It's harder for the coffee to grow. Like you said, the beans have to work harder. So they have more character is a easy peasy way to put it. What about 
variety. Are you seeing that on your coffee bean bags? I would say it's a, yeah, I would say it's about a 50-50 split and it's dependent on how what that coffee that roaster might be focused on or their target audience to some extent. I'm getting a visitor back there, so right. we'll see if she makes <laughs> no too much noise on us. So typically what I see is if it's a blend, you're not going to see the bean variety. That might be some sort of information that roaster wants to keep a little bit on the quiet side. But on the single origin stuff there, you're definitely getting bourbon or red bourbon or yellow or katuri. I'm going to mess them all up here. Yeah. You can, then you get into the really specialty variety, SL28, SL34, yeah. different varieties like that you that they've genetically coded. Then you've got stuff like Ethiopian heirloom. That's whatever that guy went out and picked that was red. <laughs> when yeah. it comes down to it, what was ready at that time? You get some different stuff where it's combinations that have been. So you get things like there's a pink bourbon now that's that's came about in South America from yellow and red bourbon just naturally being crossed. And so it ripens to a pink color as opposed to yellow or red, yeah. which is interesting to see. You got a lot more on the specialty cup, especially micro lots to where mm -hmm. the roaster's like, this is all one, one type of bean. And then, you know, on, again, when we're the consumer, we're staring at that variety. Again, I interchange variety, varietal, and cultivar. What does that mean to the taste of the coffee? And unlike in wine, we know Malbec is a type of variety of grape that tastes a certain way. Merlot, a Pinot uh, Noir, a, a Chardonnay. These are all varieties. It's very common to use these words to describe our wine. But in coffee, unless we're saying, and, and you may, some may or may not know what this is, geisha coffee. I think people are learning that is a certain type of profile, extremely exotic, high-end, floral, tea-like coffees versus Katura, like you were saying, or Katuai or Bourbon. We can assume these are quality. You know, what are we trying to avoid? Are we trying to avoid something called, which were a hybrid of a low-quality, robusta species with an Arabica coffee? You know, I think if someone's bothering to put the variety of the coffee on the packaging then they're proud of the proud of it and it as it has some meaning and that's gonna bring something to the party and ultimately farmers are using certain varieties because that's what works best on their mm -hmm. farm or they're experimenting like we talked about earlier what about the roast date i know you're a stickler for this very much a stickler for this i think it should be printed on every bag i really do I hate to go in some place and bef before I knew about it, you go in and you see an expiration date and most of your grocery store coffee is just going to have a expiration. Buy. Yeah. Best buy. And so now that I know what I'm looking for, it's a challenge to go into a grocery store and look at some of the larger specialty brands that are actually carried and find something that's two or three weeks old. It's still good. It's still good coffee, but it's not, four days off a roast it's there's a big difference and that big difference might be something that if you're pulling shots is going to be a big big element to that is how fresh that coffee is and how it grinds and how it actually performs 
in your machine or for a pour over, for example, that roast date, how long do you have to bloom it? How long, how much carbon uh, dioxide is uh, still in that coffee when you're brewing it will affect the flavor and the fresher to an extent, the better. Most people say, wait till it degasses, which is 24 to 72 hours, depending on bean and processing method. There's some talk about waiting seven to 10 days for a, for naturally processed. That's something that I've been looking at recently. And we'll talk about processing, I think, here in a minute. But the roast date is definitely very important. I like to see if it's not roasted to order. I would really like to have been roasted the same day that I ordered it. I don't want anything older, especially with USPS currently. They might take four days to deliver something or 12 days. And if it was four days old already and it took 10 days to get it to me, now it's two weeks old. Mm-hmm. And you can tell the difference when you start drinking fresh coffee between something that's three days off of roast and something that's four months off of roast. It's like a loaf of bread. There's bread in the store that will not mold. <laughs> I found it in my cabinet. Two months later, I'm like, this still seems like soft and fresh, which is scary. And coffee gets treated like that at a commodity level. Again, if you're going to the baker and getting the bread that was made that morning, why would you wait another two weeks to eat it? I think that's always an analogy that resonates with me. And so, yeah, the fresher, the better is just the rule of thumb given that the other parameters of the coffee meet what you want. I'd rather have a slightly stale medium roast than a very fresh dark roast. That's just neat. When I say slightly stale, that's relative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot out there that sometimes people are have never had fresh roasted coffee before, and you give them fresh roasted commodity coffee, and now that's the best coffee they've ever drank. Even though it's lower grade yeah. quality, it's still the freshest thing that they've had. And I like, and I had the same conversation with one of my friends the other day, and it's Olive Garden Italian food. If that's the only Italian food that you've ever had, sure, those breadsticks and unlimited soup and salad are delicious and the best thing that you've ever had. But if you've ever went to a small mom and pop Italian joint or been to Italy, then Olive Garden really is not, that good nothing to say it's bad but there's a difference yeah for sure that's another good analogy which (laughs) yeah let's say talk about process now so a lot of coffee bags and coffee names will indicate processing method is usually what i see and it'll say either washed or natural and again in the specialty realm we're starting to see other exotic processing methods honey white honey, black honey, long fermentation, like we talked about with the Ethiopia whoosh. What did these processing methods mean to regular customer picking up a bag of coffee? I think the processing methods, besides the roast level, have the most, and this is just my personal opinion on this, have the most to do with what that coffee tastes like and what you can pick up to a degree. So it has the most drastic difference. If we had the exact same coffee, bean, roast level origin, but it was one was black honey processed and one was washed, you can tell a difference. Anybody should be able to pick up that cup and tell a difference in 
the tartness and the fruitiness and the flavor explosions that happen with that black honey as opposed to a clean, well-rounded, standard cup of coffee that you would get from a washed. Mm. I think after tasting a whole bunch of coffee, that is one of the things that I can see on a label and really narrow down and say, okay, this one should taste like this because it's a honey processed. It's it's going to be sweeter. It's going to be it's going to have that fruitiness because that coffee cherry was on the seed longer mm-hmm. when it, during the processing methods. Does that make sense to you, Jen? You're you're way more of an expert. <laughs> no, yeah, it does. And I think again, you're interpreting it for your the people that are looking at your coffee selection via your curated roaster selection. I think just to quickly define processing method, washed versus natural or dried, sun-dried. Washed is when the coffee, red coffee cherry, which looks a lot like a cranberry, is soaked. All the cherries are like rinsed and put in a giant concrete bathtub. And they sit there for 24, 36 hours generally until the cherry skin kind of starts to loosen up and ferment. And let me say, before they go in that bathtub, they're usually squished a little so that they'll, they, they do have a head start on basically the fermentation process. But after that moment in time, when everything's really loose, then they're rinsed several times so that all that mucilage, sticky cherry pulp comes off. Then they're dried. And they might be dried on a big patio bed, on a raised bed, or in a tumbling basically a giant clothes dryer for coffee beans. So that is the wash coffee. And yes, the result is a cleaner, tighter, more uniform cup. And when coffee is naturally processed or dry processed, those ch- coffee cherries are taken, they're picked and put straight into these you know, big beds. They're called raised drying beds or on concrete beds in some countries. And it is a matter of real estate. Uh, I'll just go back and say a lot of coffees are washed because farms just don't have a place to spread all their beans out. Right. However, a lot can go wrong during the dry processing method because you're losing control of the fermentation process. If you're not stirring the beans evenly, if you had an unexpected rain and the beans got more wet than they should have, if you don't roll them up at night or cover them uh, and they get dew on them, uh, just so many factors can affect the natural processing method. And that's why a really good, well-done natural process is just, yeah, fruity and beautiful. And if it's bad, it is. <laughs> and it's something that you don't ever want to go back to because it has a, it's like a rotten, kind of rotten chicken skin thing going oh, on. Yeah. That's not sound, <laughs> I don't think that's a flavor note that you should put on a bag. <laughs> and the, the interesting part of it is, is it has to do with the environment of the bean and where that farm is located. And like you said, the real estate available and what natural resources they have available yeah. to it, to the extent of if I'm growing coffee on top of a mountain and I have to carry it down physically, I want to take as much weight from that coffee as possible before I have to carry it down the mountain. And so they process it at the top of the mountain so it's lighter and they can move more at one time, which is until I found out about it, I I didn't even think about 
or what they have available in the environment to naturally process that coffee. South America, Central America, tons of water available. So they're, they wash the beans. Ethiopia, a little bit drier climate in some areas. And you, you get a lot more natural processed out of that area unless they're being collected and taken to the, the Guji wash station. You've yeah. got this famous place in yeah. Ethiopia that they process beans, but it has to do with that. And I had a, a conversation with somebody on a group about, and they're like, we're staying away from washed processed coffee because we don't like the water consumption. That method is using on the coffee. And I was like, do you, do you understand what you're doing when you say, I'm not going to buy that coffee because it's washed. Mm-hmm. You're eliminating that might be that farmer's most economical way of processing that mm-hmm. bean is the processing method. And I think we're at a point now, especially coffee, that those farmers that are able to experiment in the processing method, it's becoming a luxury, really, even more yeah. of a luxury to us to be like, okay, they're doing it. They're fermenting this bean in uh, anaerobic environment with champagne yeast. Yeah. Okay. You know, know. cool. Let's see what it tastes like. Let's do it. Sounds fun. But that processing method, I think for the standard consumer, once they're educated to it, you can tell a lot more about what that coffee is going to taste like by the processing method. Absolutely. I think we've broken down the label so much that uh, you might just be starstruck in front of the next one that you're looking at as a consumer. It's, I do know, and I've segmented my brain and I don't fill it with things about wine. And so when I look at wine bottles, I, I do get that glazed over like, what what does all this mean? Which I enjoy not knowing, I'll be frank. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I think that the coffee label has so much to offer us in terms of education and inspiration. And again, that connectivity in the cup when you think, Okay, 1,700 meters. Yeah, you can picture that halfway up Mount Rainier, for example, just getting relative with that variety, being experimental and trying different coffees is something I always encourage. And then let's just briefly touch, Chris, on certifications or accolades or things that a lot of coffee people work hard to get the certifications. The farmers work hard to have them as well, which I think is the biggest thing. What do you see as the most popular or most used certification? That's a tough one to say because there's a lot of certifications out there that really don't mean what we think they mean mm-hmm. in they the States. They don't affect the taste. Yeah. Or, for example, organic might not actually be organic. There's some places that the organic bags are more expensive for the farmer than the non-organic bags. And that's the only thing that is even close to being the only thing that we're organic on that coffee is actually the word organic mm-hmm. when, it, when it comes down to it. Stuff like Rainforest Alliance is really good. That's a really hard, hard certification for a lot of farmers to get because it's, it has to do with more than what they're putting on the coffee, but how they deal with the whole environment around where the farm is. Yeah. And worker um, well-being. A lot of people don't think about that when they think of right. rainforest. And then there's some stuff with, when you get down to it with things that are fair trade, mm-hmm. for instance, there's regulations on that. And when it comes down to it, that's 
a trademark licensed item that somebody in that chain has to pay for mm -hmm. to be fair trade. And then they have to pay their workers so much. And then it, yeah. I would rather see something that is a direct trade, for instance, or traded through a reputable importer than yeah. something that just says fair trade organic. If that's your sort of that, if that's what you got, that's what you got and go with it. Some of the stuff like best of Panama or best of Guatemala or best of Costa Rica, when it comes down to those coffees went to auction and were graded by licensed Q graders like yourself mm -hmm. and were deemed, Hey, this coffee is so good. We're not going to sell it how through the normal channels it's only going to be auctioned off and that's some really good coffee typically on the certification scale you've got those ratings from different countries that's an accolade actually that adds to the right. value and to the cost of the coffee and, and i hear you now we're in a world where i can often talk to my farmer and know that the importer I might be using to bring it in, since I'm not an importing company and I'm not bringing in a whole container of 40,000 pounds of coffee, we can decrease the connectivity between myself and the farmer to an acceptable level. Chris has been really, I think, informative and of course, really fun to talk about the coffee label with you today. And I hope that our listeners have learned something new about uh, the next bag of coffee they pick up and look over. So, Chris, why don't you tell the audience where to find you, some resources, anything else we need to know about what you've got going on? So, thanks, Jen, for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. You can find more about me on the Common Grounds podcast on YouTube or anywhere that you can download a podcast. If you type in the Common Grounds podcast, you're going to see a picture of me. Or if you even type in Meet Your Coffee Roaster, which is one of the series that we have on the Common Grounds podcast, you can find out more about my show and what we've got going on there and about some amazing roasters that we have on each week and we talk to. You can also find people in the industry like inventors and innovators and engineers that are bringing us really cool stuff to brew coffee with or drink coffee out of. You can also find me at roastersmarketplace.com where you can shop almost 40 roasters and over 380 varieties of coffee or roasts of coffee and social media at Roasters Marketplace on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube. It goes on and on. Again, thanks again for coming in today. And just a side note, the Coffee Explorer podcast is sponsored by CL Coffee, which is a a brand that provides access to only the highest level coffees, and that's ciel.world coffee. Let me ask you a question. Do your friends call you a coffee snob? Do you insist on waking the entire house every morning with your grinder? Then you will love the exclusive collection of coffees from CL. Complex in flavor, micro-roasted to order, Access to the vintage awaits at cl.world, where you can see our line of highly curated coffees. That's ciel.world. And we are not snobs. We're experts.